Hello, 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 everyone. It is Luke with The Pessimistic Perspective. And there is just so much going on right now. There is so many different things that I could be talking about today. But I think I'm just going to talk about three things. And the first of those is going to be the Christchurch Massacre, the terrorist incident that took place there in New Zealand last week. The second thing that I'm going to be talking about is going to be about Trump recognizing Golan Heights as belonging to Israel. And the third thing I'm just going to briefly mention just real tangentially is that the Mueller did not recommend any Americans for indictment on any charges of collusion. And so we're beginning to see the beginning of the collapse of the whole Russiagate narrative. Not that there's been any evidence at all. You know, while I'm talking about it, let's just get this out the way real quick. So there really hasn't been any substantial evidence proving Trump or anybody in the Trump administration of colluding with the Russian government. And really, this has just been something that has been pushed by the Hillary-type people in the establishment in order to try and delegitimize Trump's presidency and ultimately remove him from office. But I think what they have just done, and this is really the only thing that I want to mention, is that this whole Russiagate narrative is ultimately going to blow up in their face. And the reason that it's going to blow up in their face is that Now, people are going to be seeing that for the past two years, the media, the mainstream media has lost their minds. You have Rachel Maddow saying that Russia controls the minds of uh, young black people by creating these, you know, Russian bots on Twitter and saying that they use these, you know, uh, you have the Mueller prayer vigil candles with Robert Mueller on them. I mean... There was just kind of this whole collective outbreak of insanity among the establishment liberal, the libtards, if you will. And ultimately what they've done, there was a USA Today, I think, did the poll, but this poll came out not too long ago. And what the poll shows is that I believe 50% of the people who were polled said that they think that this whole thing against Russia was a witch hunt. And that is what Trump has been saying. And if you don't think he's going to be saying that on the 2020 campaign trail, I mean, you're, you, you've just absolutely lost it. And I know that all the mad out types, when they're, you know, not crying over their horseshit narrative, you know, being debunked and finally, you know, beginning to come to an end. What they're saying is, well, you know, we we don't even, can't even look at the Mueller report yet. And, you know, this is not the end and, you know, whatever, why it's preemptive to say that this is the collapse of Russiagate or whatever, which is, that's just them, you know, either experience cognitive dissonance, trying to cover their ass or appease their listeners, you know, whatever the case may be, is this whole Russiagate really blew up up in these people's face, and now they're going to have to face the repercussions of that. A lot of people are going to you know, when when Trump says that this whole thing was a witch hunt, I mean, he's not going to be wrong. And so they just kind of put some ammunition into Trump's metaphorical campaign gun, dude. And that's not what they wanted to do, which maybe if the left would have been focused on working class issues 
if they would have been focused on all the foreign wars that have been going on and they found a legit progressive way to criticize Trump, you know, people like Jimmy Dore, Aaron Maté, you know, there's plenty of people out there who are bringing this perspective, you know, if they would have been providing this perspective, maybe they would have a fighting chance. But if they don't come to grips with it and they continue to still abandon the middle class, I mean, it's just going to be Trump's going to win again in the next election. Or at least that's what I think as of the moment. We will see what happens, obviously. But at the very least, it's pretty fun to just get to see these people like uh, the... <laughs> that crazy lesbian lady, Rachel Maddow, shed beautiful, beautiful tears. So I guess that is some optimism in the pessimistic perspective this week. But that's really all that I wanted to cover about Russiagate. And now on to, let's go into the Christchurch massacre, I guess. And I'm not going to spend too terribly long on this either, but it is something that, uh, I think that we can find a lot of hypocrisy in the way that it was reported and different sides of the aisle, whether it be left or right, their reactions to this. Um, I think that there's quite a few interesting things that the uh, Brandon Tarrant, or Brendan Tarrant, I believe is the name of the shooter, said in his manifesto that I believe was titled The Great Replacement, which is the uh, popular concept among white nationalists and people in the alt-right and what have you, that white people are being demographically replaced by all this third-world immigration into European countries and America, and that they are going to be a demographic minority given a much enough time. So... First things first, one of the, how I kind of came to realize that this even happened is I got on Twitter, which I recently just got a Twitter, which it is linked to on the SoundCloud page. I There wasn't enough characters for me to name it to Pessimistic Perspective, so I think I just named it something goofy. I believe it's CIA Jesuit Lizard, if you want to follow my Twitter account. But I recently got a Twitter, and I was looking through my timeline one day, when I saw all this stuff about the shooting. And so that's how I became aware of it. And one of the first things that I saw was someone actually posting a URL to the full video, or what I think is the full video at least, of the shooting. And being the person that I am, not the (laughs) sharpest knife in the box or whatever, or, you know, I I decided to take a gander and to watch it. And boy, oh boy, it was pretty brutal. The first thing that was really surrealistic is at first it's like, holy shit, am I playing Call of Duty right now? Because that's honestly what it looked like uh, once he finally, um, well, when the video first opens up, it's uh, this guy, Brandon Taran, I believe is his name. Um, I'll make it, I'll amend it in the show notes if I got his name wrong. But He's driving in his car and he's playing this uh, song, which is a meme among the far right. And it has, it's like an old Christian song about uh, fighting Muslims. Uh, I I don't remember the exact history of it. 
And so it's already kind of signaling to these people on the far right. And he was live streaming it to Facebook as it was happening. And he gets out the car. He goes to the trunk. He pulls out a rifle. And there's also a shotgun back there. And then he begins to walk into the mosque. When he first gets into the mosque, the way that it's set up is there's a narrow hallway when you very first go in and he's walking into the center of this narrow hallway and then across this narrow hallway is the entrance to uh the the I, I don't know if that's like the worship area in the mosque or what but it seemed like people were in this hallway and when he went in people were scattered at two different corners of the room he began open firing he opened fire on these people shoots them, somebody tries to run past him, yada, yada, yada. One of the things that I saw people saying, and most of these people were MAGA-type people, um, is there were some people saying that it was a hoax. And my impression from the video was not that the video in and of itself was a hoax or that the shooting was a hoax and that it didn't happen. But that was what a lot of people... Uh, well, not a lot of people, but a lot of people as far as the uh, MAGA, InfoWars type of people were saying that this whole thing was a hoax, that it was CGI. I saw people saying that if you look close enough that you can see that the cartridges that are, be eject that are being ejected out the side of the gun disappear, um, which that's not completely true. I mean, you can see a couple of them bounce off, but it also is kind of hard. And when they zoom in that close, it is grainy. And I will grant them that it maybe looks a slight bit funky, but the I would say their claims are exaggerated. They say that you can't see any blood throughout the whole shooting, which that's not true. I watched it for myself. You can see blood. They say that there's inconsistencies and that there'd be more spray or whatever. I'm not an expert in those types of things, so I'm not going to weigh in there. And they also say that there's not uh, bullet holes in plaster that you see going around and he's shooting off all these around, which, first of all, there's a lot of bodies, and most of these bullets are being sent through multiple bodies because these people are, you know, packed up on top of each other and, you know, because they were spread out to the corner of these rooms. But the second thing is I've, I've heard people make both arguments that uh, against it, but the argument that I've heard for it is that the actual rounds that he used, and I had seen videos linked to people shooting these types of guns into buildings and stuff, that, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see very large bullet holes in the walls. But that's all open for debate, but... Personally, to me, watching the video, I'm not a forensics expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I, uh, I nonetheless, you know, I, 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 it seems to me like it is probably legitimate, the video. But what I will say is maybe, just maybe, I haven't um, confirmed it in my own head, and I haven't gone over all the evidence available, I'm sure, and I'm sure that there's just going to be more and more of that comes out, but I'm going to link to an article on Unsru... You know what? I'm thinking maybe this sounds a little bit funny. I'm just going to pause the recording real quick, and I'm going to make sure that everything's set up proper. Hello, everyone. It is Barack Obama, and I'm here to tell you to 
follow The Pessimistic Perspective. You can find it on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, wherever podcasts are held, really. And also, make sure to follow The Pessimistic Perspective on Twitter. The Twitter handle is CIA Jesuit Lizard. And yeah, I'm Barack Obama, and I completely endorse The Pessimistic Perspective. Well, it seems that everything is set up proper, at least as far as I can tell. I did, um, I am recording this in a new room, but hopefully the audio sounds good. I'll be listening over it later. Could just be with the headphones on. I'm new to this whole kind of thing. But anyways, let's get back to what we were talking about. So anyways, from my viewing of the footage, I did think that it was most likely real, the shooting that took place. And... I read this article at UN's Review just earlier today by Max Perry putting some different pieces together and suggesting that maybe the what we should be looking for is a Mossad role either, you know, to the shooter or, you know, but anyways, let's get into some of the interesting things. Okay, so this guy is a supposed... He never refers to himself as a white nationalist, I don't believe. He does talk about the Great Replacement and echoes some other white nationalist notions. But I believe that he called himself an eco-fascist and said that the government that currently exists, that he most identifies with the way the system is run, is China. Which, uh, I mean, I think China's a pretty big polluter, so I don't know how the eco comes into that. And, you know, I, I don't exactly understand that. Maybe the whole text is kind of meta, so maybe that's one of the things that he's kind of trying to get a rise out of people with. But, I mean, one of the things that he says in this is subscribe to PewDiePie. He says that the person who radicalized him is this black conservative lady named Candace Owen, which obviously these two things are just preposterous on their face. And he said this because they knew they would be divisive things that would make people on the left lose it and it would further create tension in America. He said the reason that he did the attack with an assault rifle was to create further tension and division and sow seeds of discord. So you have to be careful when you're reading this because the text is very meta. It is very, there's a lot of memes and references to inside jokes on the far right. And if you aren't pretty literate in that stuff, a lot of it's going to fly over your head. And that's exactly what's happening with a lot of these people on the fur left, on the fur left, these furries, no, on the far left, people on the far left are clutching their pearls. And I saw that the response on the right was mixed to how people respond to it. You have a, a very small portion of people on the far right who you know, are saying that this guy is super based and red-pilled. You have a lot of people on the right, you know, obviously saying that this is not the way to handle the issue of, you know, refugees and migrants coming in and all this different stuff. But it seems like most people kind of fall for a lot of these same pitfalls that he intentionally set up and fell into the narrative of creating division and sowing discord. But in this article that I'm going to put in the show notes by Max Perry, he goes over how one of the things that uh, he mentions Brendan or Brandon Tarrant in his little manifesto, his 73-page manifesto, is that he looks up to Anders Brevik. And Anders Brevik committed 
a tragedy in, I believe it was Norway, maybe it was New Zealand, but uh, one of those countries that starts with an N, not Nigeria, but so he looks up to Anders Breivik, who shot up this government cultural center or something like that and detonated a car bomb and killed a total of 77 people. And he wrote an even longer manifesto. I believe like his manifesto was insanely long, like over a thousand pages or something ridiculous by it like that. But in his manifesto, he claims to be a member of the Knights Templar. He in real life was an order of the Norwegian branch of the Freemasons. And so he kind of has some interesting connections in that sense, but he viewed himself as a current day Templar back when the Templars were, you know, going after the Muslims and stuff. And he kind of subscribed to the same idea of white replacement that Brendan Tarrant did. And it was something that was at the focus of his political agenda when he carried out the terrorist acts that he carried out. But one thing that I did think is pretty interesting about this is if you know anything about white nationalist and white nationalist rhetoric, which I've, uh, just out of curiosity's sake, I've, I've listened to quite a few white nationalists and what they've had to say, is that they most often, their problem isn't even as much with the Muslims and the refugees who are coming in as much as what they perceive to be the big Jewish groups and organizations who, in all fairness, I mean, they do donate plenty of money to pro-immigration causes, and most of the major Jewish groups are pro-immigration, except when it comes to Israel, obviously. But in both Brevik's manifesto and in Brendan Tarrant's manifesto, there is no mention of any uh, Jewish role or Jewish financing behind these, which I just found almost unbelievable that two white nationalists would not mention these things in their manifestos. And furthermore, especially Brevik, I think he references over four, Israel over 400 times in his manifesto, but actually said that they're cool with Israel. And I think Terrence said that he's cool with Jewish people as long as they're in Israel. He actually went and visited Israel. Anders Brevik said something to the extent of, you know, we need to fight all the anti-Zionist slash multiculturalist. Because, I mean, a lot of these people on the far right, they don't have any problems with Israel and Zionism so long as they keep it over in Israel and they don't have any problems with it. But I mean, I think that's, first of all, just, you know, preposterous, because if you preposterous, because if you look at the way that Israel has acted has been completely outside the interest of the United States. But that's a whole nother story. But you know, wanted to fight the uh, anti Zionist and cultural Marxist. So that's an interesting comparison for him to make. And it seems that they both kind of subscribe to the Tommy Robinson style of identitarianism or far-right um, thought. And Tommy Robinson, I mean, if you don't think he's a Zionist shill, I mean, he is admittedly at least just a Zionist, but his problem 
is with, you know, the Muslims, refugees coming in, and he just wants to get them out of European countries, which, hey, that's a whole other debate to have. But he has no mention or any criticisms of Israel or really anything to do with uh, their influence over U.S. foreign policy or Western foreign policy and, in general, just the taboo around criticizing Israel, criticizing Zionism. And, in fact, he says that he is a Zionist. And if you look, Israel recently has been donating lots of money to far right-wing governments because they have a shared interest in their attack on the Arab world going up against the Muslims. So they can make bedfellows with those type of people. I'm going to get a drink of water real quick, guys. And in fact, if you look at one of the far right-wing governments that Israel funded, it was Ukraine. They funded a Ukrainian I mean, I bet I think that you could call them terrorists. You know, the U.S. would call these people heroes, but, you know, neo-Nazi battalions like the Azov Battalion, which they actually did mention, you know, criticism of Jewish people and would have Nazi insignias and swastikas, you know, openly apparent on the patches that they would have on their little militia outfits. But Israel still made bedfellows with them because they had, you know, a shared interest in going against uh, kind of Putin and Russia to a certain extent and, 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 you know, selling weapons to them, making money, you know, all of that good stuff. So since they have a shared hatred of, you know, Muslims, Israel has been bankrolling a large extent a lot of the far right in Europe, interestingly enough. At least, you got to keep in mind that this isn't everybody in Israel. There are more liberal Zionists over in Israel or whatever who don't agree with these kind of things. But under the Likud party, Benjamin Netanyahu, the far right, is currently the ones who are in power in Israel. So so that's what's going on. And I'm going to link to the article, but it goes further into some just anomalies in the manifesto, in the shooting, and the relations between uh, Brevik and Brendan Tarrant. And Brendan Tarrant even said, I believe, that he got the pleasure of meeting Brevik one time and that he wasn't a part of the Knights Templars, but that he uh, asked for permission to carry out the shooting and they granted it to him or something like that. Now, whether this is just, you know, kind of following a further meme because he's a lone, crazy person who really identifies with Brevik, or whether there is actually some sort of organization. But interestingly enough, uh, you, you don't see the media as obsessed as they are with white nationalists and stuff really carrying through on this story and figuring out if there's anybody who's connected to them, if he really could finance this whole little operation that he did alone through Bitcoin and whatnot. So there are certainly um, some interesting things going on with the Christchurch massacre, but ultimately... I think something that's even more important to take away, other than to not let this divide us and where we stand on being, you know, anti-war, anti-establishment, going against the system, but also I think that something to take away is that we shouldn't believe the mainstream media when they do this 
snake tears bullshit telling us that they care about the 50 Muslims who were killed in Christchurch and the 50 others who were injured when they didn't mention anything about the war in Iraq and the, you know, war in Afghanistan, which were both, you know, founded on complete bullshit, you know, the 9-11 narrative. And if you believe that, I mean, we still know that they funded the Mujahideen back in the day, the CIA did. So we're at least indirectly, the United States is indirectly responsible for al-Qaeda. So if even if you it either has to be blowback or... Uh, an, an inside job or an Israeli job or whatever. Oh, um, back real quick to some, sorry to be skipping around, but anomalies in the Christchurch thing. Um, just like how after 9-11, they found the dancing Israelis and an Israeli spy syndicate in the United States that I believe, if not the largest, was one of the largest spy syndicates ever uncovered. And, you know, they just kind of got let off the hook, and you will never hear anything in the mainstream about possible Israeli cooperation in the 9-11 attacks or even the attacks themselves being an Israeli job. But that's uh, for a different episode to get into that. But just like they found the, uh, the spies in America, and I can link in the show notes, I think I actually will, um, you know, over 800 pages of FBI documents talking about the dancing Israelis and this Israeli spy syndicate that was found in the United States operating. But in New Zealand, there was an earthquake. I think it was even in the same week as the Brevik shooting that happened. And when this earthquake happened, there was an Israeli spy who was killed by the earthquake and New Zealand government officials ended up finding a bunch of, you know, fake IDs and passports and stuff and found USB with stolen store, uh, with stolen things, uh, confidential things from the New Zealand police department and all this crazy stuff. So they figured out that there was an Israeli spy ring operating in New Zealand and uh, New Zealand voted against Israel on something at the United Nations, and Benjamin Netanyahu promised that uh, there would be some sort of repercussion for New Zealand doing that. So possibly that's the repercussion that we're seeing. But anyways, maybe we'll go deeper into that if that is something that you guys are interested in. But I almost kind of want to be careful about how much I talk about it because it is a pretty sensitive topic as of the moment, and it just seems like the kind of thing that I could get in trouble uh, for for saying and get removed from some platforms or something like that. But certainly interesting. I will link to some good information in the show notes to where you guys can go deeper into that for yourselves. But hopefully I sparked a little bit of interest, maybe got you to question the official narrative a little bit. But back to it. Why should we believe the mainstream media when they do these bullshit crocodile tears oh, um, about caring about dead Muslims these 50 Muslims that were killed in the Christchurch terrorist attack when they didn't care about the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. They didn't care when we overthrew the government of Gaddafi in Libya and we let terrorists take over the region. And now you can go look at Libya. They have an open slave market. So how much better are the Muslim and, you know, Christians or who, whoever it is living inside of Libya Look at all the death and destruction that took place because we tried to remove Lib uh, Gaddafi, because we did remove Gaddafi out of power. And, you know, I covered in an earlier episode about how now we have Marco Rubio sending fucking tweets to 
Maduro saying, you know, don't end up like Gaddafi and posting pictures of his dead body. And Twitter doesn't censor that, yet they'll censor you if you say the wrong thing about Israel or whatever. So it's interesting that they can do that, that all the big platforms have removed the video from the Christchurch massacre. And I believe that there is a teenager over in New Zealand who's going to spend like 15 or 20 years in prison possibly because they reposted the video, the live stream video of the Christchurch shooting. But Rubio can, you know, and they say they don't want to do that because um, it, it's violent and it could spark further violence and they don't, you know, want their platform to be something. But, you know, when it's literal jihadis killing Gaddafi and Rubio sends that as a threat to the, you know, a leader, as a serious threat, you know, they, they don't care about that. Yeah, so Twitter, Twitter has a bias. So how long am I going to be on Twitter? It doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to do it to promote the show. But honestly, if I if it wasn't for the show, I probably wouldn't do social media because even though it can be a little bit fun, I just feel like it's probably, you know, you know that they're trying to manipulate you and get those little dopamine boosts when you look at your Twitter feed and see that you got new notifications and get you checking all the time. And I don't want to be that guy who's always on my phone. So they didn't care about that. The mainstream media didn't care when, you know, we said that we were going to do the same thing to Assad and we failed to do that because Russian ended up backing Assad as well as um, possibly Iran to a certain extent. But, you know, we, we tried to and the mainstream media sure as hell did. And now they're doing the same thing in Venezuela. And it's always bipartisan. It's always both people on the left and the right. They all join hands together only when it comes to spreading more death and destruction around the world. But when it, you know, it has to come, you know, to opposing regime change or Israeli influence in the American electoral system or anything that actually matters and is of actual importance and could actually do something to change the lives of normal American people, they don't do that because they're bought and paid for. And now to the last thing that we're going to talk about. So Trump, oh boy, Israel's and Bibi especially's best friend and butt boy, Donald Trump, recognized Golan Heights as belonging to Israel. So Trump signed a proclamation on, I believe this Monday, that officially granted U.S. recognition of the Golan Heights as Israeli territory during BB's most recent visit to Washington. And you can see BB sitting behind Trump, looking over his shoulder, smiling as he signs this. And Israel seized the Golan Heights from Syria during the 1967 Six-Day War after Israel invaded Syria Egypt and Palestine. And sometimes you'll have Zionists try to tell you some bullshit about how Israel didn't start the 67 war. Don't believe them. Remember the USS Liberty. If you don't know anything about that, I'm going to link to either a video or an article that explains what happens. I'll probably go over it in a further show, but let's just say I talked to one of the survivors on the Liberty, Bryce Lockwood, and he told me that it was a deliberate attack and that Israel knew absolutely what they were doing. And they were trying to do it as a pretense to get the United States to join Israel to join Israel against the, uh, Egypt during the Six-Day War. But they started it. They invaded Syria, Egypt, 
in Palestine. And during this war, the 1967 Six-Day War, somewhere between 80,000 and 131,000, possibly even more, Syrians were kicked out of the Golan Heights with around 7,000 remaining in the occupied territory, the Israeli-occupied territory. Currently, there are around 50,000 people who live in the Golan, and about half of these people are Jewish settlers. And so now the Golan Heights is much like uh, Gaza and the West Bank. It's pretty much an open-air prison. And you have Jewish settlers coming in, demolishing Muslim people's houses, Christian people's houses, destroying church, ransack churches, ransacking whole villages, basically, and setting up their little Jewish settlements. And you have the government of Israel, you know, pay to run water through it and stuff while they have apartheid on the people in the West Bank and Gaza. And the Golan Heights is an Israeli-occupied open-air prison, pretty much. In 1973, Syria and Egypt tried to liberate this region through the use of force in the Yom Kippur War, but they were unsuccessful. Israel ended up annexing the Golan Heights in 1981 in a move not recognized internationally, and it was said to be null and void by the United Nations. So this recognition of the Golan Heights will ultimately change the State Department's language on Israeli control of the Golan Heights in the West Bank, specifically focused on the word occupied, because the word occupied has certain legal meaning and certain legal repercussions. And the State Department, America, the U.S., Trump, no longer recognizes it as occupatory, which the, pretty much the rest of the world recognizes it. Even fucking Saudi Arabia said, you know, hold up a minute. You know, Syria actually doesn't belong to Israel. It belongs to the Syrian people. You know, you're pretty bad when the people who like to chop off clitorises and throw vats of acid on women and chuck gay people off of buildings are, you know, saying that you're in the wrong. You, you're, you're probably doing something pretty horrific. But you know what? It makes sense when we start going into the Greater Israel Plan later why Saudi Arabia would make this gesture because if the Greater Israel Project goes far enough, it'll end up taking part of Saudi Arabia. But on the same hand, there's other reasons to believe that U.S. Saudi Arabia, not U.S. Saudi Arabia, Israeli and Saudi Arabia interests are becoming more and more aligned with each other. But ultimately, it's going to end up biting Saudi Arabia on the butt. But I could really give a fuck what happens to them over there. So who cares? Let them kill each other. That's that's my stance on Israel and Saudi Arabia. That might be the only good part of the Greater Israel Project is that might be a little bit fun. But ultimately, it's still going to be, you know, the people who've been propagandized and hypnotized by their leaders because the leaders are always too much pussies themselves to actually go fight in these wars. They just go send young boys um, off to die for rich old dudes because that's how it's worked for pretty much ever. Okay, so back, yeah, they're no longer going to refer to it as occupied because it has certain legal implications, and this has been a long-term objective of Zionists, like the former lawyer of Donald Trump and the current ambassador, I put that in quotations, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. And David Freeman has supported the illegal Jewish settlements. He thinks that they rightfully belong to 
Israel. He's a staunch Zionist, and this has been a big goal of his to remove the word occupied, and you can tell because he's a lawyer, and that's just the kind of thing that a lawyer of his type would do would be to try to get the word occupied out. Um, so he, he, you know, and this, obviously, this decision comes after Trump already recognized, uh, you know, Jerusalem, um, he moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, you know, so this is just another present to Netanyahu. It's another effort to try and divert the people in Israel from Netanyahu's corruption charges, so that way I believe he can be uh, um, serve his fifth term as the prime minister over there, which, um, you know, maybe uh, as hawkish as Trump is, and I mean, it would just be another big present to Bibi, which Trump loves bending over and giving Bibi presents, um, you know, and this is probably has a lot to do with Jared Kushner and other people inside of his administration, but... I mean, maybe war in Iraq, because that would certainly bolster Netanyahu's chances of getting reelected, because everybody pretty much gets reelected during a war time. That's how it works. So these are all just uh, slight moves that um, not only have consequences at the international level, because, you know, this is going to heighten heighten the Syrian proxy war, which, you know, Trump bullshitted us on and said he was going to remove troops. There's still thousand plus troops over there. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that it, that's going to start being done. He's going to let, you know, Israel and all of the terrorist jihadi groups the U.S. funds in order to fight the Syrian government. He's going to let them do most of the dirty work. And we don't even need to have troops over there. We can just send a couple drones when a BB, you know, Intel, you know, says that's what's needed or or whatever. So, I mean, absolutely outlandish. But the Golan has many strategic military advantages, not only due to its geography, waters, and its water sources, but also its natural resources. Specifically, they found large oil. They found a large oil deposit. The Israelis did in the Golan Heights. And this brings us to the American company, Genie Oil and Gas, which was set up to steal the oil of the illegally occupied Syrian territory. So who is on the board of Genie Energy, you might be asking? Who is doing this? Because this company was set up to steal the oil of this illegally occupied Syrian territory, the Golan Heights. That's the sole purpose of this company. It's why it's created. So who is doing it? Well, one of the people on the board of Genie Energy is none other than the multi-billionaire Jacob Rothschild, coming from the infamous Rothschild banking family, who were instrumental in the foundation of the Jewish state of Israel. There's also ex-vice president oil tycoon war profiteer Dick Cheney. Yep. You heard me right. He's taking a break from shooting his friends with shotguns and, you know, just going back to the the classic, let's help invade another, well, not invade, but let's, uh, let's just create more, you know, human rights travesties and steal oil from the Middle East. Um, we've got former CIA director James Woolsey on the board. We've got uh, Rupert Murdoch, the medium bearer who is media baron who's 
one of the owners of 21st Century Fox, Fox News, um, which is constantly pushing for neocon Zionist wars of aggression. So you've got quite the motley crew together. And who is the president, well, of Genie Energy? It's probably a lady you've never heard of, or a guy you never heard of. Uh, Ira Greenstein, Greenstein, Ira Greenstein, Greenstein who was a White House staffer during the beginning of the Trump administration. I believe it was in March 2018 that he was no longer a staffer, and he has very close tie to Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. They go back, they're family friends. And so, I mean, this is obviously a conflict of interest. And Jared is also extremely close to Netanyahu himself, and Netanyahu would actually used to sleep over at the Kushner household during Jared's childhood in Jared's bed. So we, um, I tweeted something to the extent uh, that maybe this goes to show that not only is Jared Kushner's, Jared Kushner BB's metaphorical butt boy, but he could very literally be or have been Benjamin Netanyahu's butt boy. We, I'm, I may dedicate the rest of the podcast to figuring out that question because that's the big kind of questions we have to answer over here at the pessimistic perspective. What happened between Jared Kushner and Benjamin Netanyahu in that bed? Was Jared sleeping in a different bed at the time? We demand answers. But, I mean, we're getting close to bringing... uh, a resolution to this podcast, but um, so Trump and those in his administration will obviously profit off the theft of oil from the Golan Heights, but um, could there possibly be another motive aside from corporate greed? And I would say absolutely yes, and possibly the least mentioned, but one of the most important motives regarding Israeli occupation of the Golan Heights is both a religious and ideological one. Religious Zionism is like Wahhabism in that it is a, it's a religious ideology, but just the way that Wahhabism doesn't necessarily represent all of Islam. I mean, it doesn't represent all of Islam. It's a small faction of it. Zionism does not necessarily represent all of those practicing Judaism. But part of Zionism is the plan for a greater Israel or the reunification of the biblical Holy Land. Greater Israel would create a number of proxy states. It would include parts of Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, the Sinai, as well as parts of Iraq and Saudi Arabia, or as the founder of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, said, the present map of Palestine was drawn by the British mandate. The Jewish people have another map which our youth and adults should strive to fulfill, from the Nile to the Euphrates. Um, And... Hopefully that makes sense to you guys, but basically the Greater Israel Project is a plan to expand Israel not only into the West Bank and Gaza, not only into the Golan Heights, but eventually it'll stretch as far as to Saudi Arabia, Iraq. It'll cover pretty much all, if not all, of Jordan. I encourage you guys go to look at a map of Greater Israel and the states that it overlaps with, and in fact... I think that this is such an important subject, and I truly think that as much as I talk about what's going on in the Middle East, you cannot understand what's going on in the Middle East if you do not 
have a cursory understanding of Zionism, the different kinds of Zionism, both religious and secular, but also, more importantly, things like the Greater Israel Project, the Oded Yanam Plan, uh, the Clean Break Memo, and you can't understand Israeli control of American politics, or at least American foreign policy, if you do not understand about how these people like Wolfowitz and stuff have read all this stuff about Greater Israel, and they're trying, you know, they create the project for a new American century and all these different types of think tanks where you had all these neocons during the Bush administration and they came in and they're they're working on it. And if you look at all the, the countries that we've been trying to regime change and destabilize in the Middle East and create sectarian division and support Wahhabism and the countries in the surrounding countries trying to further just break and collapse their societies so that way they can come in and they can implement the Greater Israel Project. So I think that maybe sometime soon it'll require more research than most of these podcasts do because most of it's just taking a few brief little notes about um, what's currently going on in the news and then, you know, just kind of rambling about it. But I want to do a, a, a concise... But, it, you know, concise when it comes to this stuff. I mean, it could be an hour to, to two-hour podcast, but maybe it would uh, give some of you guys a, a better understanding if it's not something that you're already familiar with. Or maybe if it is something you're already familiar with, maybe I'll share some new information. Or if not, it's always good to just hear it again, stay sharp, so that way you can explain it well to other people yourself. So that is something that I definitely might do. And we can talk about revisionist Zionism and all the different kinds. We can talk about uh, how Zionism operates basically as a, as a sort of decentralized power structure with all these different centralized groups and think tanks that belong to this Zionist network and how they interact with the, you know, the U.S. and control a lot of what's going on in U.S. foreign policy, what the neoconservatives and evangelical Christian Zionists have to do in this whole picture. I mean, there's so many things to understanding what's currently going on and not just the Israel-Palestine conflict, but the larger of what's going on in the Middle East. And if you don't understand this stuff, it's, I, I, I truly do believe it's impossible to have um, even a grip of what's going on over there. So if you, uh, if you don't believe in this religious motivation, just take into the account that uh, recently that the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said that he believes that God sent Trump to save the Jewish people in a recent speech that he gave in front of a congregation of Christian Zionists. I mean, he says, I mean, maybe you don't believe him, but Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, former director of the CIA, says that he believed that God sent Trump to save the Jewish people. And also keep in mind that all there's tons of religious Zionist fanatics in Israel who are responsible for putting in the Likud party and people like Benjamin Netanyahu. There's all different kinds of political parties in Israel. America's really fucking dumb. We're like the only country that has a two-party system. Most people have like tons and tons of different parties. But if you look at it, there's like 
basically four different type of parties in Israel. You have the people who just want to dominate, and that's what's currently going on is kind of like this domination tactic. You want to you have the people who want to remove completely all the Arabs from Israel or greater Israel even. Um, and you have uh, the people who basically are eliminationists. They just want to completely eliminate. And you have a very, very small, small group of people who are either liberal over there or they want to draft some sort of constitution where both uh, Jews and Arabs have the same human rights or whatever, but it's a very small constituency. But among these four different camps, you have a variety of different parties, political parties, many of which are religious Zionist of some sort, and many that are secular. But also, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a whole big complex issue, but the Greater Israel Project is something that is held by definitely by religious Zionists, but also non-religious Zionists as well. And it's part of the greater agenda. I think a lot of the people in the U.S. establishment just like the idea of having a big military beachhead in the Middle East that serves our interests. So there's all these different groups vying for their interest in both, you know, the U.S. and Israeli system. And so maybe I can do an explanation about kind of that. And maybe that will help um, explain this larger picture of what's going on in the Middle East. But, yeah, just keep in mind that there's a lot of these people in Israel um, who believe that in order for their Messiah, the Moshiach, I believe, to come, and um, they'll have to first complete the Greater Israel Project and then build the Third Temple. And without doing these things, uh, their Messiah isn't going to come. And I believe that the, where they want to build their Third Temple is the Dome of the Rock, which is a, a Muslim worship place. And I um, I don't remember all the facts. I don't want to get out of my league, but there was a, a, I believe, like a Jewish settler type guy who was a religious fanatic, and he actually had plans to blow up the Dome of the Rock so that way the Third Temple could come under construction and yada, yada, yada. I could keep yambling and rambling and babbling and all that all day long. But for the most part, I think that I covered most of the things that I wanted to cover in this podcast. As always, I really encourage you guys to go look at the show notes. Please look at the show notes and any of the stuff that interests you or that interests you when I talked about it on the podcast that I linked to, go look at it. Support independent and alternative medias and verify the things that I have to say for yourself. Look into what I have to say. Certainly just don't take my word uh, as gospel by any means. I mean, not that that wouldn't be cool. I mean, that would kind of stroke my ego a bit, but I, I want you guys to see that these things that I'm talking about have some basis in reality and that I'm not completely pulling this out of my ass, even though I'm not the most eloquent person ever. But anyways, maybe not the funniest pessimistic perspective ever, but hopefully you guys learned something. Hopefully it was interesting. Hopefully it wasn't too rambly long-winded. I didn't take as much notes as I normally do. But yeah, check out the show notes. I'm going to point you guys to some really cool articles and videos that go into everything I talked about in the show today. And yeah, just everybody take care. See you guys. Well, talk to you guys soon.